Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. This is Easter Sunday morning at Faith Baptist Church and the world around, of course, and we're glad that it is. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ on a day like today and every Sunday morning that we do. I've been speaking on the resurrection of Christ in a series of messages all from the Old Testament. And this is number six. We've been leading up to uh, this message. And so we started out this morning in our Bible reading a few minutes ago in our service in Jonah 1.17, where in that book of Jonah, he mentions that he was in that fish's belly for three days and three nights. Then we went to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus uh, likens his death, burial, and resurrection to the three days and three nights that Jonah was in that fish. And so I'm using that text of Jonah and then forward to Matthew, uh, but I'm going to have you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll be there in just a minute. The prophet Jonah is kind of an interesting Old Testament prophet, one of the minor prophets we call it just because of the short length of the book. Jonah lived 700 years before Jesus lived, and so 700 years earlier, we have this story of Jonah. You probably know it or remember it, but there are two key things that happened out of that book of Jonah that we know about. Number one, that he was swallowed by a whale or a fish, and he was inside that fish three days and three nights, and the fish spit him back out onto the bank, and he lived and went on with his ministry. We know that about him. And the second thing we know is that he went to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, he preached and they repented because of his preaching. So we know that also. And Jonah's only mentioned one other time in the entire Old Testament. And that's in the book of 2 Kings, just in the list of kings and things, just in passing almost, his name is mentioned, not giving him uh, any uh, credit as to what happened to him. So even in the Old Testament, he's not mentioned very much. And then interestingly, Jesus uses Jonah's uh, experience in the whale as an illustration of his own death, burial, and resurrection, and that's the only time Jonah is mentioned in the New Testament by the Lord when he mentions that. So as important as, important as he was and as unique as his story was, it's interesting that we don't hear much more about him than that. Now, we read Jonah 1.17 where after he was, on, he was fleeing from God to Tarsus, he was on board the ship, there was a great storm. Jonah knew why the storm was there, and so he said to the mariners, throw me over and the storm will, will cease. So they did, they threw him overboard, the storm uh, ceased. And verse 17 says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Did that miracle really happen? Did, was he really swallowed by a fish? You know, liberal thinkers have debated whether that's so. But if not, then you have to kind of call Jesus a liar, don't you? Because uh, Jesus referred to this specific example and based his three days and three nights in the grave upon what happened to Jonah. So we're sure that it did happen. So we read in Matthew 12, that Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Paul explained the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bible, turn there and let me read this to you. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. I want to preach to you this morning on the gospel. Notice what it is. Which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you, were, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and thirdly, that he rose again, and when? The third day, according to the scriptures. Jonah was in the fish until the third day. Jesus was in the grave until the third day. And that is part of our gospel that we believe in what, and what we preach. You know, our world today desperately needs Easter and Christmas. I know that the names Easter and Christmas are borrowed from a pagan history, as a matter of fact, that we have both of those names. We don't uh, make Christ in a mass and neither uh, do we celebrate the Feast of Ishtar or Easter. I know that. But the days of our week are also borrowed from pagan history too, but we, that doesn't bother us too much to, to use those. The fact is that Christmas is about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Without that, we don't have salvation. That tells us who he is. And then Easter tells us about his resurrection, and that tells us about what he did. So these two facts make up the gospel, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ and that he died, was buried, and rose again for us. Remember in Romans 10, Paul based uh, the salvation that we have upon that. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, there's Easter, or excuse me, Christmas, and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, there's Easter, you will be saved. You have to believe in those two facts in order to be saved. So today, Easter emphasizes the work that Jesus did for us. His person, we remember from Christmas, that he is God in the flesh, incarnated into the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. At Easter, we talk about what he did for us. He died on the cross for us. He was buried but he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. We're going to talk about that from 1 Corinthians 15, as you see in an outline that's in your bulletin, or if you're watching, you see this on the screen. Now, we're, we're witnessing a world without the gospel. Isn't that true? Uh, even the psalmist said, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth separate themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, break his bands asunder, cast away these, these cords from us. We'll not have this man. And they, he goes on to say, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He'll have them in derision. And our earth right now is experiencing a move away from these truths and away from that gospel. That's why we need this kind of message so much. Listen, folks, the sin nature, which you have and I have, and every human being that ever lived and lives now has a sinful nature. 
which means lawlessness without the rule of law. When we do away with the rule of law, there's nothing left but anarchy and lawlessness. And that's what we see in our world right now. We're doing away with any control over that sinful nature. Salvation in Christ changes a person individually, inwardly. When you got saved and received Christ as your Savior, you were changed. Not the whole world, but you were changed. And then that change that is inward begins to come outward, and we begin to affect our world. But the world can never change without Christ. It will still be a sinful world. It will still be a world under God's judgment and condemnation until individually people accept Jesus Christ as Savior. He'll come one day, he'll, he'll return to this earth, and he will reign on this earth, and there will be universal peace and righteousness, but not until Jesus comes again. And until that day, our only hope is to receive Christ as our Savior. So I want you to look with me at the gospel, because it has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Easter is all about. We can talk about bunnies and eggs if you want to. It really wasn't a part of Easter. You can talk about, uh, you know, all the, thing, the, the nice things that go along with a, with a holiday weekend. But unless we have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there really is no Easter, and there's no hope for us either. So it's the death, burial, and resurrection. Now notice that I want to talk about those three things. And I want to talk about three different things under each one. So if you'll follow me, I'm in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Notice that he died. And I want to talk to you about three things about the death of Christ. First of all, that uh, there he died by crucifixion. So I have there with for you Matthew 20, 18 to 19. Behold, Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify. And then he says, and the third day he will rise again. A little later in Matthew, Pilate said to him, what the, said to the people, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. Paul will later write to the Philippians and in chapter 2 describe the incarnation of Christ, but say being, for, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And so we know that he was crucified. Number one, folks, this Roman punishment called crucifixion was for criminals. I want to read a little bit to you from D.A. Carson, a great scholar these days, who described the crucifixion. He said, apart from the emperor's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be put to death by this means. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, aliens, barbarians, and uh, uh, those kind of people. Cruci uh, he says, many thought it was not even something to be talked about in polite company. Quite apart from the wretched torture inflicted on those who were executed by hanging from a cross, the cultural associations conjured up images of evil, corruption, abysmal rejection. But listen to this. Carson says, yet today, 
Crosses adorn our buildings and letterheads, and they grace our churches and shine from lapels and dangle from our ears. And he says, no one is scandalized. It is in this cultural distance from the first century that makes it so hard for us to feel the compelling irony of 1 Corinthians when it says, for the message of the cross is to them who are perishing foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Isn't that true? We really don't understand what a shame it was for a person to die on a cross. It was for the worst of society. It was for the worst of people to have to be crucified. It was so bad that if you were a citizen, you weren't even allowed to, to uh, die that way. Secondly, it was a horrible death. The flogging, the beating, the, the ridicule, the exposure. I read again this week uh, a long account of crucifixion, and you probably have read those too. To die this way was a terrible way to die. They ha hang you on a cross, either nailed you to the cross or tied you to the cross, and it took three to four days on the average for someone to die that way. And not only are your feet crossed and nailed with a spike, your knees are bent in the middle so that the only way you can get air is to push yourself up so your lungs open up, but you're pushing against that spike that is between your feet and pulling yourself with those spikes that are in your hands. It was, a, it was an awful way to die. And Jesus died that way, voluntarily. As a matter of fact, he laid down his own life, didn't he? Jesus himself said, no man takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. My point here under the crucifixion is, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave the son of God to die like that for sinners. That means for you and me. Which brings us to the second word that I have here, and that's the word substitution. That is, that he died for us. He died for you. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. Titus 2.14 will say, He gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The greatest doctrine we have in the Bible is described to us by the smallest of words. The fact that God died in our place for us is described with the little word F-O-R that I just read to you. He gave himself for us. That's the doctrine of substitution. Now, folks, sin must be paid for, and sin will be paid for, and you have two choices. Either your sin can be paid by Jesus on his cross, or your sin can be paid for in hell, in your hell forever. You'll make the choice, but it will be paid for one way or another. So there is that thing we speak of, of the great transaction. The great transaction says, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he took upon himself alien sin, and we get back alien righteousness. He had no sin of his own. He took our sin. 
We have no righteousness of our own. We get his righteousness. And so this substitution that we're talking about is part of the death of Christ. And then I want to say, thirdly, identification. Because Isaiah, in chapter 53, that great crucifixion chapter in the Old Testament, verse 9 says, He has made his grave with the wicked. He made his grave with the wicked. Matthew 27, then 38 says, Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. He's making his grave with the wicked. And Paul will say to us in 1 Corinthians 1.26, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise, not many uh, wise men after the flesh, not many mighty and not many noble are called. There aren't a whole lot of wise men here. We are, we are part of uh, this class of people. Now, he was crucified between two thieves. He, was, he took the place of Barabbas, uh, which name means the son of a man. He really took your place on the cross. And secondly, he came from heaven's throne to a criminal's cross. That was the incarnation taking on the flesh of human beings so he could do this, die on the cross. It was a condescension from heaven to earth for this reason. But I want you to say, folks, he identifies with us. He identifies with you. God loves you. You cannot be too low. You cannot be too much of a sinner. You cannot be too far gone for God to save you. If he could save that cross, that thief on the cross, he can save anyone. Do you remember the picture when two, a thief on each side and one of them reviles Jesus and says, if you're really the son of man, take us down off of this cross. You come off the cross. The, the people in the crowd jeered at him and saying, he, he, said, he said he could save others, he, himself he cannot save. And the irony is, folks, that if he say, could he save himself, by the way? The Bible says he could call 12 legions of angels. He could be delivered at any moment that he wants to. He's God in the flesh. But if he saved himself, he could not save anyone else because there'd be no death and no resurrection. But because he died for you, then he can save you. And that's why he stayed on the cross. So the death of Christ is important. Secondly, the burial of Christ is important. So again, in verse 4 of our text, and that he was buried. Why does Paul leave that word in there? Isn't it obvious that he was buried? Maybe not to everyone. It says it was final. It says he was truly dead. There are many people in this world still today who don't believe he actually died on the cross, that he was rescued. The, uh, the uh, Islamic religion believes he did not die on the cross. There are others who said he uh, uh, was revived again in the, tune, uh, the coolness of the tomb and all kinds of theories like that. No, he was buried. He was buried for three days. You don't bury someone that is not dead. Again, I use the word identification first. Because not only do we have that uh, he, he made his grave with the wicked, but we're told also, and the rich in his death. So he was identified not only with the, with the wicked and the poor, but he was identified with the rich in his death. You know, Jesus said, 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Riches take us away from God. Riches distract us from the purpose of, of this life. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? Matthew 27, 57 says, When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph. And in verse 60 it says, And he laid Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. You ever seen graves that were made for rich people? Have <laughs> you ever seen the ornateness of those kinds of tombs and the rest? Here is a man so rich he could purchase the cliff and hewn his own grave out of the rock, whereas poor people were dumped on the trash bin. And Jesus not only died among thieves, but he was buried among the rich, exactly as Isaiah 700 years earlier had said would happen to him. And so there is that punishment, and I want you to know he identifies with you as rich also. Maybe you are rich. Maybe you consider yourself rich, whatever. Uh, but he loves the rich and the poor, doesn't he? I remember the story of the, the rich woman in, in Great Britain many years ago who said, I was saved by the letter M. And somebody asked, what did you mean by that? Because uh, it says uh, simply that not many noble, not many rich are saved. If the M hadn't be there, it would say uh, none of the rich, but not many of the rich. And so she said, that, that saved me. Maybe not a whole lot come. Maybe you can't come because of riches, but you can come. Money, it's the love of money that destroys you, not the money, you understand. It's that love that distracts you from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was identified with the rich. And notice the word completion here. Because when we speak about his burial, we speak about this part of his death. I want you to know that he was three days and three nights in the grave, right? And so what do we do? We remember what Jonas, what happened to Jonah, and we remember what Jesus said about Jonah. And so he said that as he was three days in the fish's belly, so I will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Matthew 20, 19 says, and shall deliver, Jesus speaking, they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. The third day, all three days. Matthew put it this way. Mark again records it by saying, they shall mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Luke says it again. Luke 24, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So Jonah's analogy, his type, that is, came true. And it came true just as the Lord said that it would. Now, there are different views about the day in which Jesus died. I don't know if you're aware of that. Friday just becomes kind of the traditional day. I happen to take the Thursday uh, view of when Christ died. And the reason I do is I understand that you can get three days from Friday to Sunday by what they call inclusive reckoning, and that is part of a day counts as a whole day, part of Friday, all day Saturday, part of Sunday. But there's no way you can get three nights. <laughs> no, no way you can get three nights between Friday and Sunday. 
and there are, there's a view even that Jesus died on Wednesday, which I don't hold to. I think Thursday fits it well. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So whether you take that view or not doesn't matter, but the fact is Jesus fulfilled the type of Jonah, and he fulfilled his own prediction of his death. He drank the bitter cup, didn't he? When he said to the Lord in the garden, can this cup pass from me? And God said, no. And he said, then I'll drink this bitter cup. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. This was a rock of offense to him. But when, God, when he said in the Last Supper, drink ye all of it, that's what he did to that bitter cup. He drank every bit on the cross, and I think he drank every bit of it in the grave. Three days and three nights, the completion of everything that was typified and everything that was prophesied of him. And notice I have the word incorruption thirdly. And that is <laughs> that he went into the grave and his body couldn't even corrupt. His body couldn't even begin to decompose. Psalm 16, a thousand years before, Psalm 16:10 says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He'll not even see corruption in the grave. So Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2:31, and Peter says of that verse, He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, the place of the dead, neither his flesh did see corruption. And then Paul uses that in Acts 13 on his first missionary journey when he says, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid uh, unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised from the dead saw no corruption." Isn't that a great thing? Why didn't he? First of all, he was God. He was God in the flesh. He was deity. Secondly, of course, he was sinless. He was virgin born, not of a man. He lived a sinless life, accepted by God, put in the grave and resurrected because he had no sin. He was sinless. And so his body had nothing to pay for. His life and his body had nothing to pay for in death. You and I have something to pay for in our death, and part of that will be the corruption of our flesh. But he had nothing to pay for that way, and so he didn't. Death had no hold on him. Death has a hold on you and a hold on me. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment, because Adam and Eve were told, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. Three ways, physical death, spiritual death, and then eternal death without Christ. And you and I have that same debt to pay, and we will. And so Jesus nailed our sins to his cross. Do you remember this statement in Colossians chapter 2? He wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he was taking it out of the way and nailed it to his cross. That is, the, the accusation, the condemnation that your sin has upon you, Jesus nailed it to his cross, and he can nail your condemnation to that cross too if you accept this gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so the burial was important, but 
I want to talk to you about the resurrection, of course. And that's also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 4, he was buried and he rose again. He rose on the third day. And this is according to the scripture. So first of all, resurrection. Did he really rise? <laughs> Three accounts again. Matthew 28, 5. The angel answered and said unto the woman, fear not. You know, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Mark records it in 16.6. He saith unto them, Be not afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. And Luke records it as, They were afraid. They bowed down their faces to the earth. They said unto them, that is when they saw the angels at the tomb, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Now, I want to say that he rose bodily, right? He rose bodily from the grave. Why? Because the grave had, had no power of corruption upon him. He, he, when he rose, his body had to come out. It didn't compose. You remember the grave clothes? You remember how that the clothes that covered his body had fallen onto the rock exactly as they were when they covered his body. Why? Because that physical body was gone. And the, the cloth that covered his head and his face was folded and put on a shelf to the side. Why? Because that body folded that cloth and put it on the shelf. That's why. And so he rose bodily. And our text here in 1 Corinthians 15 says, there were witnesses that saw him after his resurrection in various different ways in his physical body. Look at them, if you will. Verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Now, if you're a lawyer and you're going to court trying to prove a point and you had 500 witnesses, don't you think you could prove your point? 500 witnesses, of whom... The greater part remained to this present time. Some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. All of these witnesses that say he came out of that grave even bodily. And thirdly, I would say, folks, he did it on the Lord's day, Sunday morning. That's why we're here doing what we're doing this morning. We're not Sabbath keepers. We don't, we don't uh, do the Old Testament uh, days of worship. We worship on the Lord's day. This is the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To us, this is first day. This is the day we give God our first. You ought to first give him of yourself. You ought to secondly give him of your wealth. And thirdly, give him the first of your week. Give him this day, the day he rose from the dead. That's why we come together on Sunday. And so that's why we say Christos vos Cres. <laughs> he is risen. Yes, he's risen indeed. But I want to go just beyond the resurrection to two other things, and that is his ascension and then his intercession, because those are important too. These are things that save us too. Did he ascend back into heaven? Yes, he did. So Psalm 68, 18, again, a thousand years earlier, thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. And so he ascended, I want, you to, I want you to understand, bodily. He resurrected bodily. He ascended back into the air bodily. 
There he was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, Acts chapter 1, and as they're beholding, he ascends up into heaven. And so Luke records that twice. Once in his gospel, 2450, he says he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Luke records it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So even his ascension was done by witnesses, by many witnesses. And E.F. Harrison, in a book that I love to read on the, on the life of Christ, uh, spoke about leading captivity captive, and he said it like this, the evil one and all his hosts hang on the belt of the captain of our salvation. He led captivity captive when he came out of the grave and when he ascended back to heaven. And I want you to, say, to remember this. If he resurrected and he ascended bodily, he will return bodily. As a matter of fact, he will return to the very place his feet left. His feet left from the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14, he will come back and stand upon the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, the angel is saying to those believers, this same Jesus that you see ascending up into heaven will come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. If he ascended bodily, he will return bodily too. And that brings us to our last thought about resurrection, and that is the intercession that he has. Where is he then? Where is he? Well, Mark 16, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, just to the right of God, where, by the way, no angel can sit, no human being can sit, no created creature could ever sit there. Only God can sit there at the right hand. Acts 5.31, him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And one more, Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. There he is making intercession for you. And you know what? He's there bodily. He resurrected bodily. He ascended bodily. He's at the right hand of the Father in flesh and blood. A rabbi Duncan was his name who said, the dust of earth sits on the throne of the majesty on high. The dust of the earth sits there. And you know why? Because you and I who believe in him will be there one day too, bodily in our resurrected being. So he's there and his blood that he took back with him then in that physical body pleads our case. He is our advocate and we cannot sin that Jesus' blood does not cover that sin. Past, present, and future. Isn't that a great thing? We're not sinless by any means and we're responsible for our sin. But as believers in him, his blood covers us because bodily he is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And one more thought. He waits to apply that atoning blood 
to your soul. If you don't know him as Savior, he wants to apply that blood to you. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb we sing? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Do you know him as Savior? He wants to be. So that's the gospel, folks. The death, the burial, the resurrection. We sang that song, Lo in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. But death uh, cannot uh, have its sway over him. He's Jesus our Lord. Now, Easter then, to you and me, Easter is not just a holiday. It's not just a religious icon. It's certainly not a religious hoax. But this God has loved you enough to give his son to save you, and he's the one that's put out his hand to you, the next decision is yours. Do you take that hand or leave it? He's done everything that he can to save you, and now the responsibility for life eternal is in your hands. I trust that you will save him, and maybe this Easter day, this day of his resurrection, would be a wonderful day to say, yes, I believe in who you are and what you did for me. I hope that if you don't know him, that you will receive him. Stand now with me, if you will, those of you who are here, and thank you for uh, being here and, and sharing these few moments uh, with us as we consider this great gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we, we praise you and worship you for what you have done for us, loving us in the way that you have, to send your son for us, to let him die such a terrible death in our place, to be buried and yet to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven and be at your right hand for us. Father, what a wonderful thing that is. We know that our world needs this message. Individuals need this salvation that they can find in Christ. I pray, Father, that your word and the Holy Spirit would convict hearts today, wherever they are in this world, however they hear this message, that they would turn their hearts to him. So bless us now as we think about this and as we sing in a few minutes, and our invitation is open. If someone is not saved, that they might be saved this morning. We'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our invitation is open as we sing, and, and as we sing, I'm always at the front if you want to come while we're singing, and our invitation stays open after we're dismissed. You can see me after the service and say, this is my need. Let's take care of it and do what the, what the Bible says we should do. Gordon will come and lead us in the song. You sing along with us.